Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have called us away from those idols which we hold dear. We pray that we would cast all wickedness away from within our hearts, that we would cling to you as our source of life and sustenance, because you are good. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be only acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. The early church had a practice that I suspect, as I tell you about it, will make you very glad that that is no longer a practice for us. It has to do with their baptism, and in doing their baptism, they would separate the sexes. The men would go with the men, and the women would go with the women. And that's not the uncomfortable part, although you may think that's a bit odd. The uncomfortable part is why they separated each other. And it was because they baptized the new converts naked. Wow, there's no reaction to that. I thought there would be. Thank you. As odd as it may sound, there was actually a really important reason for why they did that. They did it because as the new convert came to the baptismal, they would strip off their clothes and enter in, and then they would be baptized, being buried in the water and lifted out in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, lifted out to new water, new life. And then as they came out of the water, they didn't put on their old clothes, but new clothing. New clothing that represented the new life which they had entered into. Clerical wear acts as a similar reminder, at least for me, and I hope for all of you as well, in that it's rather drab. And if worn right, it should be black, because it reminds us of our death. It reminds us that without Christ, we are dead. And then after I've put on my black cassock, I put on my white surplus, or when we're feeling extra fancy, my white alb. And that reminds us of new life in Christ. It is a vivid reminder to myself that I do not minister on my own power and is a reminder to all of those whom I serve that I am called to die, that we all are called to die to our old selves and be born anew in Christ, to put on something new. This morning we continue through St. Peter's epistle and we start with just a little bit from the beginning of the second chapter, where St. Peter writes, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up in salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As St. Peter writes this epistle, he says, so put away. And that's why we talked about that very odd tradition of the early church, which arose a couple centuries at least after St. Peter was writing. But it's what he's saying is actually strip off. And it's a word used for taking off your clothing. Take off these things of your old self. 
and put them away. They are no more in Christ. I found that many find it easy to kind of move away from those big external sins, the ones that are obvious and kind of big, but then as you get sanctified, something happens and you realize the ones that are in your heart. And it's ultimately Christ, it's ultimately your heart which is what God is interested in. As you look through scripture again and again, it has to do with, with the change of the heart. And that's what Christ is getting at this morning when he says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Because the Pharisees found that it was really easy to do these outward things of righteousness and look really good. And if you want, you can try it. You can try and make your life look really good. And you'll find it's easy. But the change of the heart is what Christ calls us to. And that's what St. Peter hits on this morning. As he tells us to put away all malice, all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and slander. And think about these five sins that he mentions. They're sins of the heart that say that God is not sufficient, and I want nothing to do with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Think about malice, wickedness, if you want to use a different term. That, of course, is just an overarching category, which is hopefully one of the ones that we can slowly move away from more quickly. But then think about deceit or hypocrisy. Those two are much more linked. And it's making the impression that are at odds with reality. Both of these, deceit and hypocrisy, show something that is not. If I were to get up and pretend like you should be like me, because I'm amazing, <laughs> I'm being a hypocrite, because I know inside myself I sin. Probably many of you know that inside myself I sin as well, <laughs> if not for the fact that I've told you, perhaps you've also experienced it, for which I'm sorry. <laughs> But if I do get up and I say, you should be like me and be quick to repentance. You should come to the table on your knees as we do every Sunday and pray the confession with all your heart, which I strive to do, though don't always do with total success. That's not hypocrisy, right? If we say it how it really is, we avoid that trap of hypocrisy, of deceit. I am a sinner. And I need Christ. Similarly, envy, perhaps which is the most evil of these, the most hard to get over of these, talks of wanting something that someone else has. And it says that God, what God has given you is not good enough. If I'm so consumed with wanting what one of you has, how can I be thankful to God for what he has given me? If I'm so consumed with wanting what one of you has, how can I love you well? Rather, Scripture calls us to rejoice with those who rejoice. So if one of you gets a windfall or buys a beautiful house, and I'm like, wow, I wish my house was that beautiful, or some other thing, we rejoice together for the gifts which God has given us. And it reminds us of all the goodness that God gives us individually. Envy is perhaps the most destructive of these because it sort of sneaks in there. 
one of the things that's really interesting about envy is it seems that cultures actually sort of grab, catch on that envy is really bad. And, and a couple of years ago, I took some time and studied folk religions. And one of the things that popped out was this idea of envy being almost this evil spirit came along in a lot of these folk religions sort of across the world. And part of that was this evil eye, which perhaps you've heard of. And, and you see little things in these folk religions that protect you from the evil eye. And the evil eye is something that has to do with envy. The evil eye says, oh, you have something that I want. And then it casts a spell, usually in these folk religions, upon that person, and then something bad might befall them. Obviously, we deny the existence of the evil eye, but we recognize how destructive envy is. Slander is similarly destructive, where we say something bad about somebody that isn't true. And again, we see how that cuts off that relationship with that person. If I'm going around saying that one of you is a terrible person, how can I possibly love you? If I have an issue with somebody, if you have an issue with somebody, you go to them and you say, I'm struggling with this. And you work that out in love. And they may say, well, that's weird that you're struggling with it. Why? And you, you have that whole conversation. But it's a covenant of love between the two of you that talks this out. These five sins, or five sins that St. Peter picks up on, damage our hearts, as I hope that we've seen. Damage our hearts and tear us away from God. Perhaps the question here should be, is the Lord convicting you to shed any of them? And if the Lord is convicting you of one of those that you need to repent of, it's because the Holy Spirit is working. And then much like it's easy to make it kind of look like it's gone away, if we do that, we don't grow but rather it's praying dependency upon the Holy Spirit to grow us, to heal our hearts of whatever is causing that, to help us love Christ all the more. It's not our works that do it, but Christ working in us. Have you ever met somebody who's really excited about something? Like they just found a new car, and all they talk about, often kids are this way, right? And they're like, oh, I got this Tonka car, and you hear about it for like three straight hours. Or perhaps you've met a new Christian, and that's the most exciting thing for them, and they just, all they do is talk about their new faith in Christ. I remember when I became a Christian, I was so excited and I read every book that I could read. I asked every question that I could ask, sometimes with impertinence, but I didn't care. I wanted to know Jesus well. St. Peter writes, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up in salvation. As I was reading about this passage, it seemed like almost a 60-40 split between commentators. And about 60% were like, well, you know, a lot of the Christians in Asia Minor were new, and therefore Peter was telling them to just, like, soak it up. And about 40% of the commentators were like, well, maybe. But I think he was saying something more like, continually long for that. Remember your conversion and how excited you were to know Jesus? Long for that pure spiritual milk. I think the second commentators are right. 
that we are to continually long for that pure spiritual milk that comes from the word. I don't think it's limited, limited to new believers, but rather a call to continually kindle that longing within ourselves. And so that begs the question, what do our hearts desire? I found with my walk in Christ that over time, it's kind of like a roller coaster, and perhaps you all remember that as well or have seen that as well. There are times where it seems like deep, deep intimacy, and then there are other times where it seems quiet, and you wonder, where is Christ in this? Where is God in this? And yet there's that call to long, to be fed by, that, by the word. Our call is to long for the pure spiritual milk, for it will cast out and strip away all other things. But it's interesting. It's not just for milk, right? It's for pure milk. If you go to the grocery store, sometimes you'll see something that says, like, in big words, no additives. And it's supposed to be really exciting because it doesn't have any of that extra chemically junk in it, right? I, don't, I was in science for long enough that I'm kind of skeptical about all of this, but, but there's something really attractive about like pure milk or, or no additives in, in X, Y, or Z. And this is what St. Peter is saying. Don't add anything to the word and don't take anything away from the word. The word is pure of itself. Our temptation is always to kind of add things to it, right? Like, or, or take things out that we find kind of unseemly. But that's not how we get fed from the word. It's by reading it and letting it, letting it feed us. Now, another thing to note, you remember last week, we talked about how the word was a seed, right? How the word was a seed planted in our heart. And this week, it's the word that feeds that seed. Did you catch on to that? There's kind of a duality there. The word converts our heart. Christ converts our heart. And then it is Christ through the word that strengthens and allows it to grow. This past week, Johnson and I were talking about how when you plant a seed, it kind of pops up, right? And you can kind of tell what that is maybe if you really know what seedlings look like. But oftentimes, it's like, unless you see that seed underneath, you just see the little seedling, and they all kind of look the same. And it takes a little bit of growth to grow up. It's by tending to that seedling that that seed grows up into something more than just a, a seedling, grows up into something like a tree, or a stalk of corn, or wheat, or whatever analogy you want to use in this case. So the seed is planted in our heart, but then it's tended to by the pure spiritual milk of Christ. Another point to make here is how the Holy Spirit works in this, right? There's often a lot of times, especially young Christians, but even older Christians, kind of want to hear a word from the Lord. Like they want a definitive answer about something and they pray and they pray and they pray. I was this way, so I'm not picking on anybody. And, and they don't necessarily hear anything. They're like, well, why isn't God speaking to me? 
It's because we need to learn to depend on the word that he has given us in Holy Scripture. And when we read the word, when we're steeped in the word, we give the Holy Spirit the power to speak to us, to convict us, to convert us, to draw us closer and closer to him. It is the word of God in Holy Scripture that forms our lives. It feeds that seed which was planted in you when you first met Christ, and it is that which makes it into a stalk of corn or a tall oak tree or whatever other plant you find particularly endearing. Now, have you ever had a delicious meal that kind of ruins that, that plate for you for the rest of your life because you always want to go back to that delicious plate? I had somebody tell, tell a story. I heard somebody tell a story the other day about eating Colby beef. Like he had a rich friend who was like, here, I'm going to treat you to this delicious meal. And he said, after he experienced that, he just stopped eating meat because it was so amazing. Life in Christ is like that. When we meet Christ sincerely, there is nothing else in the world that compares. There's nothing else in the world that gives us that peace, that joy, that strength. Life in Christ is worth forsaking all else. And this is what it is when he writes, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The Lord is good, and it is. He is that spiritual milk that strengthens us and endures us to the end. We end with that thought that the Lord is good. A few people have been like, we've talked a lot about holiness recently, and I want to end with a thought on holiness because we can hear that and wonder, how can I possibly ever achieve that standard? The standard which is God. You can't. That's the punchline to that. You cannot become holy on your own. It's not about the good works that you do. But it's about the good that God is doing in you. It's God that plants the seed. It's God that waters the seed. It's God that strengthens us for difficult times and enlivens us for service to him. And this is the center of the gospel. God came into this world, incarnate in Jesus Christ, and died that we might know him intimately. He calls us to himself. And he makes us his. It's not the good that you do, but the good that God is doing in you. And this frees us in our pursuit of holiness. Because it's not by your works, but by the work of God in you. My dear friends, God plants the seed. God feeds the seed. Can you taste his goodness in this? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Remember the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, who said it is more blessed